me pick this up so I can see. Uh, sometime after this, all right, um, I'm actually going to pause here already. So sometime after this, sometime after what? Uh, after John 5, of course, the, the events in John 5, where Jesus issues this stinging rebuke to the Jews. And of course, John is, is, is lining up this narrative intentionally and, and kind of leading us along and, and revealing different things to us along the way. And he wants us, right, to pay attention to this narrative that, he, that he's kind of weaving. Hey, after this, look back in John 5. What did, I, what did I just get done talking about? What did Jesus get done talking about? After this, this is what's going on. Jesus, of course, had, had just told the, the, the Jews, hey, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Um, in, in verse 46, he had just said, for, for if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus is the prophet that Moses wrote about, the, the faithful Israelite, the son of God, the seed through whom the blessings of Abraham would come to all the nations. And probably most explicitly, uh, in, Moses says in, in Deuteronomy 18.15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Right? So, so after this, Jesus gets, gets done connecting himself to Moses uh, in, in his prior teachings, and we move on to this event with the feeding of the 5,000. So after this, uh, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. John is, John is probably writing to a mostly Greek and Roman um, crowd, so, so he, he explains to them di different terms. Uh, so the Sea of Galilee would have been known to them as the Sea of Tiberias. So he explains stuff like that to, to his audience. Um, and he'll make other references like like the Jewish Passover feast, right? You know, if you're writing to a, to, a, to an audience of Jews, you would just like say Passover, right? But he's like, hey, this is a feast of the Jews. This is what's going on. Pick him back up. All right. <clears throat> a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Again, connecting back to the to the previous chapter. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So after this, after the healings, the conflicts with the Jews, and various teachings, 
Jesus and his disciples head off into the wilderness. Mark's account says that Jesus wanted his disciples to rest, to, to get away. They had been working very hard. They had been very active in ministry. Uh, but as they arrive on the mountainside, they find that the people have followed them and a crowd of, of thousands has gathered. So before we, we jump into the text and pull some points out of, the, out of the, this episode itself, I think it's a, it's a good time for us to take a, a short detour. Um, John records a great number of incidental details in his gospel. Um, and at, at the end of John's gospel, in, in John chapter 20, he says the reason that he wrote was that so that we might have faith, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Christ, and that, and that by believing in him, we might have life, right? So that's why John wrote. So if John's writing is to increase our faith, we really need to take a look and say, all right, what, what in here is John telling us? They can really increase our faith. Anytime, anytime we're reading any scripture, really. But John, John especially, he, he wrote with intent. He tells us that. There's a ton of detail packed into this short passage. Uh, just to point a few of these incidental details out. And the reason why I want to point them out is because if you're ever telling a story to somebody, if you're ever telling somebody something about, say, your hometown, you're, you're going to know things about your hometown that other people aren't going aren't gonna to pick up on. And if, and if somebody's not from your hometown and they're faking it, you're going to know. You're going to be like, the, this guy is telling us all kinds of nonsense. That, that is not what my hometown is like at all. This helps us to understand these incidental details that John was actually an eyewitness to, to what's going on here. He was there that everything that happened here, he, he was involved in. So I want to take a look at a few of these. All right, let's talk about the number of people for, for just a moment. Uh, this area where they're at, they consisted of many small towns, numbering in the hundreds, some in the thousands. Um, it, this area was a hotbed of activity when it came to rebellions, um, uh, prophets kind of, kind of rising up and, and, and thinking that they're, that they're somebody, Right? It's not really difficult in this situation to gather 5,000 people together and, and get them into a crowd. Now, if you're like me, you might, you, you try, when you, when you hear numbers, you're like, all right, I got, I got to put that into some kind of concrete, like I have to understand, like, what does what, what 5,000 people look like? And there's probably 100 and, I don't know, 120, 150 people in here right now. So we're, we're, we're packed, we're, we're shoulder to shoulder, but there's lots of room. We, we could probably fit more, we could probably fit you know, several hundred in here at least. A crowd of 5,000 people, practically speaking, can fit into an area the size of a football field. So just, just picture that in your mind. You ever been to a football game? 5,000 people pretty easily, pretty comfortably can fit into that area. Um, we're also told a little bit about where Jesus was. He's on a mountainside. So he's on a mountainside kind of looking down into a valley, and this is, this is a, a frequent way that, that Jesus would teach and that other people would teach. Uh, during this time, because it's easy to create kind of a natural amphitheater where many people could hear the voice of one person. So if, if you ever looked at this and you, and you kind of said, Man, how, how is that possible to talk to five? It's, it's totally possible. I mean, if you ever stood on a football field full of people and you think that anybody on the field could hear you if you kind of shouted from the, from the bleachers, it's pretty easy, very, very practical. All right, so that's another 
kind of incidental detail. Uh, the Passover was at hand. This is close to uh, the 14th of, of uh, Nisan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, the name of that Hebrew month, right? Is that close? And, Andrew? <laughs> so between March and April, uh, that is springtime. Um, that, that's where that month occurs. It, it, they, they point out that there was grass. Like, why mention grass? Why, why even mention that? And Mark mentions that it's green. Green, like, okay, we know we're telling you the story. Are you just trying to kind of fluff it up and, and fill in some details? You're trying to make that word requirement? You know, if you're in school, you're trying to, like, uh, I got I to get to 10,000 words, so let me, let me fill in some extra stuff. <laughs> That's right. Is that what you, no, John's not doing that. He, he's, he's giving us details that we can go back and check. Grass grows in Israel following the spring rains. There's actually two, two there's an early rain and, and, a, and a late rain. I think this would have been after the, the late rains. And so there would have been plenty of grass, and it would have even been green. So we get these like cool incidental details that even the, the other gospels kind of corroborate and, and, and fill in, and it's like, wow, these, these guys were really there. Like, they're not just making this stuff up. This isn't just some guy who came along and said, hey, let me try to make a, a theological treatise. He was there witnessing all this. Why, why are we told the loaves were specifically barley? Well, there's a second planting and, uh, and harvest of barley, which also corresponds to this time. So they would have, they would have had, the, the, the loaves that they would have been eating would have been uh, barley. This would also recall to mind uh, a, a miracle from Elisha, right, who, who multiplied, uh, you know, not, not quite as in, impressive as Jesus. He, he multiplied 20 loaves for 100 people. It's like, I don't, okay, I don't know, Elisha, that's, it's, it's cool, but, you know, not, not quite as cool as Jesus feeding 5,000 from, from, from five, right? It just shows, like, how much greater Jesus is than any of the prophets, even some of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Um, why ask Philip where to get bread? It's another cool incidental detail. Philip is from this area, so he would have been kind of the local hometown boy who would have known, like, if anything, if anybody, where, where are we going to go buy bread? But we know Jesus did ask that um, as a test, but still, it's, it's a detail that John records, and all of these incidental details, John gets verifiably right. In, in a course of 15 verses, this, he's got a 21-chapter book full of this stuff, right, that you can go back and you can verify. John is trying to increase our faith. Like, hey, look, not, not in the Holy Spirit even, like in the background, like, hey, don't, don't just, yeah, it's awesome that Jesus did these miracles, but every single detail I'm recording in this gospel is, is for you to go check out and have your faith increased. And I hope we can, we can do that today as we look at this, this awesome miracle. <clears throat> so yes, written by the Apostle John, he was an eyewitness, he was there. God is amazing for orchestrating all this for us. All right, so back to the story itself. When, when confronted with these hungry people, instead of resting and instead of sending them away, as the disciples in the, uh, the other three Gospels suggest, that's, that's what they, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say, hey, send the people away so they can go buy, buy their own bread. Jesus makes the people's problems his problem. And by extension, he makes the people's problem his disciples' problems. Amen? Do you feel the burden of the people around you? I mean, even if you can't always swoop into the rescue, even if you really can't do anything about it, do you, do you at least allow yourself to feel it, feel the compassion of Jesus? Or do you stamp those feelings down? Oh, oh no. Uh, 
somebody pointed out that there are hungry people in our neighborhood. And if I think too much about that, I'm going to have to go and do something about it. So let me, let me you know, squash that, and, and somebody else will take care of it, okay? Jesus' example does not allow us uh, to just let other people's problems go. Jesus expects us as his disciples to make other people's problems our problems. Jesus is concerned about their well-being, not just their spiritual, but also their physical. We see Jesus' heart for these crowds, for the people wandering about in this wilderness looking for something, looking for a Savior even. Everyone in our world today is looking for something. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for fulfillment, solutions, satisfaction, friendship, all these things. And there are plenty of organizations and individuals out there offering up their version of a solution. What are we offering to the people around us today? The response of, of Philip and Andrew and the other disciples when Jesus said, hey, uh, how are we going to feed these people were partial measures, unworkable solutions, you know, mostly that depended upon their own power and ability. What, what, I don't know, what, what can I do? I can only do so much. Here's my idea. Uh, I got these, this kid with five loaves here, but it's not going to do the trick. You know, sorry, Jesus, I, I, can't, I can't, can't help out here. The five loaves are not going to go far enough to feed 5,000 people, but at the end of the day, the people are still hungry. So when Jesus presents this problem to his disciples, he does it as a test. He knows what he is going to do, as the text says. What is this test, do you think? Well, Philip, uh, since he's the first one to be asked, we know that when he found uh, Nathaniel, that was the first thing he did. He went out and he found Nathaniel at the beginning of the gospel in chapter, in chapter 1. He says, hey, we, we found the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. Come on, come with me. We, we got to go follow this guy. Right? So Jesus knew that Philip knew, just like Jesus was just saying in chapter 5, <laughs> that, that he's the guy that Moses was wrote it, writing about. Right? He's who Moses wrote about. He's who all the prophets were predicting would, would, would come. That's what we just, we just looked at. You know, John is weaving this narrative and connecting all these things together. There's nothing in here that just kind of stands independently. John is, is going somewhere with this. He's going somewhere. He wants us to connect the dots and make it applicable to us. Jesus knows that, that Philip believed, at least by his words. So it seems like the test is something like, do you really, though? Like, I know you believe. And ask yourself that. I know I, know, I, know I believe. But do I really believe? Do, do I live like I believe? Right? Not, not just intellectually. You, you affirm some facts about Jesus. That's not what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for a changed life, a changed perspective about everything. Do you really know what it means that Jesus is with you? On my first uh, kind of sub-point here, I think we need to know who walks with us. We need to know who walks with us. The disciples, they kind of knew, again, on an intellectual level, but it really didn't sink in. They didn't really grasp the significance of what it meant to have Jesus walking around with them. 
what's wrong with their reaction and, and, and what can we learn? They knew there was a problem, right? They, they had an idea of what the solution would look like. Buy the food. This lad has some food. Maybe we can use that. Uh, the point, we, we, we know that the solution looks something like the people need to be fed, so we got to feed the people, right? Like, the, this, like high level, they grasped it. They were like, all right, we understand the problem here. But their main problem, their main failure, was that they didn't look to Jesus first. They looked at the problem. They looked at their kind of half measures. They looked at their limited abilities. They didn't look at the fact that they had God walking around with them in the flesh. Again, Jesus doesn't want lip service. He doesn't want you to just affirm some truths about him. James tells us, look, hey, you believe in God, right? Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not about just affirming some things about Jesus. It's about a response that shows you truly understand what it means to have Jesus walking beside you, walking with you. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We've got to go to Jesus first. We've got to put him first. And then we have to walk like Jesus. We have to walk like Jesus. We need to be continually reminded that if Christ is with us, no problem is too big. Nothing can defeat us. That's how Jesus walked on this earth, and that's what he understood. No power in the world, in this world, no power in the spiritual world, not even death can overcome us. There is no power over you that anybody has, no situation going on in your life that is not happening with God's permission. That's what Jesus says to Pilate when he's about to be crucified, right? Hey, there was, you have no power over me unless it was given to you from heaven. Is that what our response is like when, when, we're, when we're going through life, when we're having different challenges come our way, when we're having to, to solve difficult problems? Are we like, all right, I, I see the test. I see the test here, Jesus. And I'm going to respond in a way that's faithful. Remember who you're walking with when you have an impossible task in front of you. Remember who you're walking with when you have no idea what you're going to do. When you're all out of options, remember who you're walking with and continue to walk like him. The disciples had not yet fully realized the implication of, of who Jesus was and the fact that he was with them. They still often lacked faith in spite of seeing miracles, in spite of seeing things change, uh, in, in spite of seeing healings, in spite of, in spite of witnessing all of this stuff, they still often lacked faith. If the disciples who walked with Jesus and saw these things firsthand had that happen to them, how much more do we need to be on guard with our faith? To say, man, I, you, know, you know, these guys saw Jesus face to face. They walked around with him and saw these miracles firsthand, and yet they still struggled with faith. We need to take a look at ourselves and say, all right, am I, am I, am I really responding faithfully in, in this situation? Because I'm sure the disciples here 
you know, they, they, they weren't thinking, oh, there's something wrong with what I'm saying. Philip was like, hey, I mean, I guess we could buy, we could spend eight months wages and, and buy all these people bread. Andrew's like, well, hey, we, we do have fish. They're, they're not like, hey, I'm saying something wrong here. How often do we think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, just pressing forward, you know, but are we really, are we really being faithful? Again, they, they verbalized it, understood it in their heads, but they didn't really, really let it sink into their hearts. The fact that the king, the king of kings, the king of the universe is walking with you. That's who's got our back as, as Christians. And I mean, like, got your back doesn't even really begin to describe or do justice to the position that Christians have in Jesus. It, you walk around, if you're a disciple today, you walk around clothed in Christ. It's funny how the Holy Spirit moves because exactly what Constance said during communion was, was something that, that I wanted to point out that, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1.29, is the same power that lives in disciples of Jesus. That same power that raised him from the dead lives in you. What problem do you have in your life that's bigger than death? I mean, nothing stands up to that. <laughs> There's no power that can overcome the power of Jesus in us. Even death. Who here is uh, facing problems in their life, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody. All right. Just as Jesus, again, wasn't surprised by hungry, needy crowds, and he knew what he was going to do, nothing that happens in your life is a surprise to God. And we need to remember that trouble comes our way. When, when trouble comes our way, that it could very well be a test. I say could because sometimes trouble comes our way just because we make bad decisions. <laughs> so it's, it's not always a test. Sometimes you just messed up. But even that, God already knows what he's going to do. That, that was the reason Jesus came, because we keep messing up. We're a bunch of mess-ups, you know, and we, and, we, and we seriously need help, all right? God already knows how he's going to respond to that problem as well. How is Jesus putting you to the test? Jesus asked Philip, hey, where are we going to buy bread? What is he asking you? today? What, what, what's Jesus asking you today? What are we going to do about this marriage? What are we going to do about your friend who's lost? What are we going to do about your purity? What are we going to do about your pride? What are we going to do about any, any of these things? Take your pick. Whatever it is in your life, Jesus is asking you, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Are you going to be like, well, well, golly, Jesus, I tried everything. Tried that, I, I tried the 10-step program, and I tried this, this method, and I bought these you know, 15 different books and tried everything, and, and still I can't, can't seem to, to shake it. And Jesus is just sitting there like, didn't you read John 6? <laughs> like, what? Like, what? Like, come on now. I put that in there. I put that in there just for you. That's what the disciples uh, failed to do. They, they failed to have their first answer to any problem be 
to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Lord, you know what to do. You know what to do. Show me what to do. They put their eyes on the problem, just like we can often do. They put their eyes on their own ability or, or lack thereof, like we can often do. And when they should have fixed their eyes on Jesus, that, that's what they did. I'm not saying that, that if you go to Jesus first and say, hey, you know, Jesus, tell me what to do. I, I'm, I'm submitting to you. I'm looking in your word. I'm looking for a solution to the problem. What do you want me to do? I'm not saying that that's going to make everything always easy and painless. Sometimes the difficulty and the pain is the test. How are you going to persevere? How are you going to persevere under this test? When that happens, when, when, when the test is actually unanswered prayer, when you go to Jesus and you say, hey, Jesus, I need some help here. I need, I need, you, to, I need you to fix this. I can't do it on my own strength. Sometimes the test is, are, are you going to persevere through that? We know that James 1.3, as that says, the testing of our faith produces perseverance. God is working on your character. Let, let's strive to be people who pass the test when, when Jesus puts it before us. So it's time to, to, to get into some, some contemplation. Like, are, are, are you going to pass the test on the next challenge Jesus sends your way? When Jesus says, hey, how we, we, we got a problem here. How are we going to solve it? What's the answer that comes first before anything else? All right, say it with me. Jesus. All right. The, the little kids back in children's ministry, right, they know that answer because it's like the answer to every question, right? What did you get out of the lesson? Jesus, you, you know. <laughs> yes, say, the, 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 the little children understand to come to the kingdom like a child. They, they understand. It's all about Jesus. Go to Jesus first. And then he can work through us. And, and yes, there is still work involved. Uh, we see in the synoptic accounts in, in the other three Gospels that um, that Jesus, it, it says that the disciples, that Jesus gave the bread to the disciples and the disciples distributed the bread. John, who tends to be a little bit more theological, says that he just says that Jesus distributed the bread. That's, what's, the, what's the point that he's making there? When you work for Jesus, it's Jesus working through you. That, that's what it is. He, he, he's, not, he's not conflicting with those accounts. He's saying, look, it's Jesus who's doing the work. It's Jesus who's, who's working through you. It's, it's not you. It's him. And, and Paul, we know, understood this. He said, um, paraphrasing here, I, I strenuously contend with all of Christ's energy that so powerful, powerfully works within me. That's in Colossians 1.29. When you do the work of Jesus, the encouraging thing is that he makes sure you're taken care of. We see at the end of this, this episode that they picked up 12 baskets full of bread. They can, it can get a little tricky to start looking at numbers and be like, ooh, what's that number mean? But I mean, come on. There's 12, 12 apostles. There's 12 baskets of bread. They pick them back. It's like, all right, come on. John is really telling us here, look, Jesus is taking care of them. Jesus is taking care of them. At the end, we see the people attempt to make Jesus king by force, but he is not having any of it. Jesus is only going to be king on his terms, not mine, 
not yours and not anybody else's. If you want Jesus to be your king, we need to know his terms. And those terms are, among other things, absolute surrender. Give up everything. Nothing can, become, can come between you and Jesus. So let's make a decision today that when the next test comes, that we're not going to focus on the problem or our own ability or, or lack thereof. Let's be people who know who we walk with, know who we walk with, and know that we have to walk like him and know that every problem finds its solution by starting with Jesus. Amen.